Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 57 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And of course, I have with me... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Our mission on Dermosphere is to bring to you discussions about some of the latest articles of special clinical relevance in the field of dermatology so that you don't have to spend so much time flipping through journal articles and can spend more time taking care of patients, etc. We come out every two weeks direct to your earbuds, and we've got some fun ones today. So in our last episode, I was able to discuss how two of my favorite things came together in Holy Union, (laughs) dermatology and games. And today I again have another Holy Union, dermatology and behavioral economics. Wow, I didn't know that was a personal passion of yours. I, uh, passion might be strong, but it's a personal interest. So I am a bit of a podcast enthusiast. I don't know if you make a podcast, are you by definition a podcast enthusiast? <laughs> uh, so I listened to a number of other podcasts and what first got me into podcasts was the podcast Freakonomics. And I have to give a shout out to the dermatopathologist at the University of Pittsburgh where I did medical school. I forget his name. I think it's Dr. Ho. Um, who said, hey, you guys listen to podcasts? I really like this one. And then I was hooked. So Freakonomics talks a lot about behavioral economics as well as other aspects of economics. And I always look forward to a new episode. And this is a nice article that discusses how we might incorporate the principles of behavioral economics into dermatology. So economics, you might think money and stuff. Behavioral economics is really more about human psychology. So it talks about how We can use behavioral psychology, the psychology of decision-making, to influence behavior. And maybe we can leverage it in medicine in general and in dermatology in particular to do things like increase adherence or influence people toward making beneficial lifestyle changes and things. And this paper discusses several concepts and techniques from behavioral economics using psoriasis as a disease model. The article is out of the JAD and is entitled Leveraging Behavioral Economics to Promote Treatment Adherence, a Primer for the Practicing Dermatologist. Authors include Michael Woodbury, who seems to be a medical student, and Lourdes M. Perez Chada. These folks are out of Harvard and Yale. So look, another holy union, the Ivy (laughs) Leaguers cooperating. (laughs) So the basics of behavioral economics are themselves kind of fun. All right. So traditional economists view people as rational actors who consistently make decisions based on what will further their self-interest. Okay, that's traditional economics. Behavioral economists say, well, that's not actually what happens. So behavioral economics says that human decision-making is irrational. (laughs) Okay, now Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true if you think about it, but they don't mean irrational like totally crazy and off the wall. They just mean humans usually don't make truly rational decisions. Their decisions are irrational, and they are predictably irrational, which is why this is important, because since they are predictably irrational, we can use the things that predict their decisions, even if they're irrational, to influence behavior. One of the central tenets is called dual process theory. Um, This comes mostly from the work of 
Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who wrote, um, yes, it's worth ringing. Um, <laughs> there's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow that Danny Kahneman wrote uh, that I read. It's quite good. It describes all this stuff. They're like the founders of behavioral economics. They, he describes two separate cognitive systems that control our choices that we make as humans. So basically, there's intuition and thoughtful deliberation. So okay. intuition is called system one, and then reasoning, system two. And then system two is this thoughtful deliberation. System one, intuition, it's kind of the default, unless we kind of stop to think about it. And it's driven mostly by emotion. Quick, emotionally driven intuition. So that's how we make decisions. Ta-da. <laughs> so how can we use this and these concepts to influence our patients? Well, there's a lot of different com concepts in behavioral economics we can use. So one of them is called framing. You probably have heard about this one, Michelle. Mm -hmm. So the relative appeal of choices can change depending on whether they are presented in a manner that focuses on the positive or the negative elements. So I think the classic example in medicine is telling people how likely they are to get a bad side effect. Okay. So if you tell people there's a one in a thousand chance that your brain will explode, <laughs> they kind of identify with that one in a thousand and put themselves there. But if you say 999 out of a thousand people who take this medicine have brains that don't explode, <laughs> <laughs> then they identify more with the 999. So I sometimes, you know, we'll discuss very rare side effects in the context of systemic medications such as methotrexate. So instead of saying, you know, there's a one in 10,000 chance about this lung scarring, you can say, you know, 9,999 in 10,000 patients who take it um, do just fine in terms of their lungs. Caveat, I don't know if that's actually the incidence rate of the pulmonary fibrosis. <laughs> so that's framing. There's okay. also the decoy effect. So this enhances the appeal for one option over another by introducing another but similar and less appealing third option. So if you're giving people two options and they don't look like they're excited about either of them, you can say, well, how about you like this one instead? And it's even worse. Well, then they'll say, oh, well, one of those two choices might sound okay. So for example, if you say, okay, here's a couple biologics for your psoriasis. You can get this one, which does a great job. It's called guselcumab. You can do this one <laughs> called adalimumab, which does an okay job. And they're like, man, I don't really like how any of those sound. Well, there's also methotrexate, which requires laboratory monitoring and has a host of potential side effects. And they might say, well, actually, one of those first two sounds okay. The example I wrote down for myself here is, would you like a topical steroid, a topical calcineurin inhibitor, or rubbing sand on your face? So <laughs> if, it's, if it's obvious, it might not work as well. I feel like diet like ads do this all the time where they're like, you could take this convenient capsule twice a day or eat seven bowls of kale. Like It's sort of the same kind of decoy effect thing. Yeah, that's fair. There's also a concept called anchoring. I think a lot of us are, um, know a little bit about this. I've heard a lot about anchoring lately. Um, one of my residents often refers to anchoring. So this entails introducing certain information as a reference point in order to change a person's outlook on a decision. So there is a study they cited in here that asked two groups of psoriasis patients the following question. How willing are you to take a monthly injection? One of those groups was first asked the anchoring question, how willing are you to receive a daily injection? Mm. So when comparing the results of both groups, those who were asked the anchoring question were almost four times more willing to obtain the relatively more favorable monthly injection. I think you can see there's a lot of overlap with these concepts because you can see that the decoy effect might play a role here too. But the idea is well, that you give people a reference point to start with. 
they do this in advertising all the time too. Like they'll they'll say, well, for this system, you would ordinarily pay three hundred dollars, but you won't pay three hundred dollars. You won't even pay one hundred dollars. You'll have three easy payments of nineteen ninety nine. Like that's the same basic thing, right? So in our last episode, you discussed how Mr. Dr. Tarbox plays a lot of late night video games. I now see that during that time you are watching late night television <laughs> because you see way more ads than I do. So no the, <laughs> economics overall is really all about incentives and behavioral economics focuses on them as well. So incentives in, fall into several different categories, including social and, of course, financial. So a social incentive would be, for example, publishing a patient's good progress on some kind of social platform. And of course, a financial incentive would be like paying people to take their medicines or something. And there have been studies that show that that kind of thing can work, even when their incentives are fairly small. They also point out that lottery systems can incorporate another concept called regret aversion. So people don't want to regret something that they have done. So they kind of have a fear of regret. So you can offer financial incentives and then making make people worry that they will lose out on the lottery win if they don't participate, if their number is called. Mm-hmm. You could potentially incorporate social incentives into this as well by publishing the names of the winners. And then if people did not participate, you know, lottery of all the people who successfully get their injection every month or whatever. Oh, Luke, his name was called. He would have won $1,000, but uh, he didn't take his medicine. So sucks to be him. <laughs> Everybody shun him. In uh, one of the Freakonomics, again, authors is named Steve Levitt. And in one of the podcasts, he talked about how he thought it would be a good idea to make a big lottery system to convince people to get the COVID vaccine. Hmm. You know, if you offer $5,000 or $10,000, you know, a substantial amount, and then you again publish the winners, then people first will be motivated by the potential for money. Second, motivated by regret aversion. If they don't get the vaccine and their number is called, then they'll regret not having participated. And third, social influence as well, because if their name gets published and then this flag oh, didn't get the vaccine, doesn't get the $5,000, then they'll have social pressure to do it as well. Interesting. It's kind of like pre-commitment to win things. Sorry, go ahead. I said, it's like those must be present to win things when they like have a raffle or something at an event. Yeah, maybe. I You go to more events than I do too, I guess, <laughs> when you're not watching late night television. <laughs> Pre-commitment is another concept, and it's an action that somebody takes that commits them to doing something, like getting a gym membership or making a public announcement. And of course, you can combine that with social incentives as well. So if we were to, for example, encourage our patients to post on their social media, just starting my new medications to get my eczema under control that might offer them some, it might influence their behavior positively. There's a concept called loss aversion. People suffer more from losing something than from gaining a commensurate amount. So it hurts more to lose a thousand dollars than it feels good to get a thousand dollars. So we could potentially leverage this for our patients by giving them 500 bucks just to start with, but saying, now we're going to take that away if you don't consistently take your medicines. And then, you know, they'll feel bad about losing it. There's something called the status quo bias. The tendency of people is to just choose default options. So this will often come into play with like opt-in versus opt-out things. So if people have to choose to do something, they probably won't do it. But if they, the default is that they do it and they choose not to do it, then they'll probably end up doing it. So um, the British government, for example, has leveraged this to default people into 
putting money into retirement accounts. So they, I mean, all it is is checking a box, but people prefer just not to check anything. And so they just keep rolling. And so they get money in their retirement accounts. The article, so those are all the concepts that the article goes over, which I, again, love that this connects with some behavioral economics that I've learned from other podcasts. They close with some ethical considerations. So there are people who say, are using these principles, is that manipulating our patients? Does it limit their choices? Does it impact patient autonomy? And there's a pretty good discussion in the article about this stuff that I don't really feel like we need to go into right now because I think the upshot is if you present people with information or you present them with choices, there's no way to do it in a purely neutral fashion. So since we're stuck influencing people's behavior, we might as well use our power for good. Finally, just a little few tidbits about adherence that are just kind of interesting. So obviously it's a big deal. Not adherence overall of medicine accounts for about 100,000 deaths and $100 billion annually. And the authors point out that focusing on this issue of adherence may lead to better large-scale results than, for example, trying to improve existing medications or developing new ones. So yeah, should we focus our resources on improving adherence rather than making the next psoriasis biologic? In psoriasis, 40% of patients are non-adherent. It's a lot. And non-adherence is especially high for topicals. Why? Well, according to the patients, they don't like the clinical outcomes. It's inconvenient and it's kind of uncomfortable. You know, if they slather stuff on yourself, it gets on your clothes. And then they also worry about adverse reactions. Wow. Sometimes I think about how infrequently I, as a dermatologist, actually like moisturize my skin. I will do like my face all the time and my hands sometimes, but like using lotion on my body, not that frequent. So I, I kind of empathize with patients having a hard time using topicals consistently. Would you like to put lotion on your body every 10 minutes or would you like to do it just once a day? <laughs> nice framing. I was Very. going for anchoring. Oh, anchoring. Dang it. I almost got it right. Okay. All right. We're going to start over. This article is called Behaviorally... <laughs> That's the, is that the fear of missing out part that we just did or the regret part? Okay, so... I think it's the same thing. I did think about that. I think like regret aversion is FOMO, fear of missing FOMO-y. out. Yeah. Well, speaking about things that are hard to treat and may involve some improvements with considering the psychological aspect of the disease. Um, we're going to discuss now one of my least favorite diseases in dermatology because it causes so much distress for patients and it's difficult to treat. Um, so we're going to discuss here pain management in hydrodenitis suppurativa and a proposed treatment algorithm. The authors Kevin Savage and Lauren Orenstein et al. from variety of locations, including Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Emory University, Fairkoff Graduate School of Psychology, and Excelsior College in Albany, are all proposing Excelsior. That Excel- I knew you were going to do that. I would have been so sad if you hadn't done that. Um, so they're all proposing something that I think we all recognize as dermatologists, which is that HS patients experience a lot of pain, and we're not exceptionally good at treating it. Um, pain can contribute significantly to reduced quality of life in patients with this very disruptive condition. Uh, It can also potentially interfere with their ability to improve their health from the disease. It might limit movement and cause patients to isolate themselves. And so we need to try to help develop a rubric 
for pain management guidelines. And pain management is not something dermatologists receive special training in. However, it is something that, that can really significantly affect patients who have HS. The pain in HS can be acute or chronic and can be predominantly nociceptive, which is like the pain from the actual inflammatory lesions, which can be described as aching or gnawing pain due to tissue damage, or it can be neuropathic, the burning type of pain due to somatosensory nervous system dysfunction. And so this is trying to provide a conceptual framework for us to be able to treat patients' pain in patients who have HS. We talk about in this article the fact that there is a devastating impact on quality of life from HS. It's actually one of the most devastating of all dermatologic diseases. This can be partially due to decreased um, ability to work, impaired intimacy, decreased ability to have robust mental health, chronic pain, and substance use disorder. And pain correlates more highly with quality of life than even their disease severity. So looking at a large study of patients, about 1,300 with HS, the majority of these patients rated their pain as moderate or higher, um, with 4.5% describing it as the worst possible pain they've ever experienced. And the pain severity in HS is comparable with patients who have chronic post-traumatic headaches, which is worse than even patients who have blistering disorders, vulvar lichen sclerosis, vasculitis, or leg ulcers. So these are really urgent needs that we have to address this, and we need to have a rational plan to understand how to help these patients. They talk about current pain management guidelines and evidence, and the short end of the stick is there aren't a whole lot. Um, we have some literature about using intralesional triamcinolone and incision and drainage to manage acute pain in patients who have HS. Um, intralesional triamcinolone is one of the only pain-directed therapies studied in HS, and there is conflicting data. So some studies have shown that ILT, so intralesional triamcinolone or intralesional kenalog, can decrease pain from HS nodules and abscesses from anywhere by 75% to decreasing the pain from a 3.1 to a 0.7 on the pain scale. And in some of the studies, it's showing resolution also involved lesions. But there was a randomized controlled study that we covered in episode 13 of the Dermosphere podcast, which actually randomized HS lesions less than two centimeters to either 0.1 milliliter of intralesional kenalog or to normal saline and was not able to detect differences in pain reduction or lesional healing time. So maybe just poking them or injecting them with something random, well, probably not so random, can be just as effective as the triamcinolone itself. And, you know, when we reviewed this article, we wondered if it wasn't possibly bacteriostatic properties of the saline, if it wasn't physiologic disruption of a biofilm by injecting fluid, if it wasn't just the caregiver effect that the patient had a intervention and thereby felt cared for and potentially that improved some of the psychological aspect of pain. And that's one of the next things they go into in this article, where they talk about the fact that HS pain is complex and correlates with mood. Many patients with HS suffer from depression and anxiety, and so a multidisciplinary approach may improve the management of pain in these patients. So they talk about two different strategies for this, cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. Most of us have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy. Probably fewer of us have heard of acceptance and commitment therapy. They both have um, in common that they focus on self-regulation, pain education, and relaxation response, but they differ in their approach to handling the pain-related cognition. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, patients are kind of taught cognitive restructuring techniques to help kind of modify their thoughts. So when they feel pain, instead of thinking, I'm going to be in pain for the rest of my life, um, I'm always in pain, this pain is the defini defining characteristic of my existence, you know, things that are understandable to think when you're in severe acute pain and when it recurs, they're taught to focus on I'm in pain right now. These are the things I can do to help myself feel better. Um, the 
kind of more slightly more advanced and more recently developed acceptance and commitment therapy actually emphasizes um, sort of less reactivity to pain distress, sort of giving yourself some cognitive space between your experience and your thoughts and trying to potentially focus on your values and how to restructure your reaction to your pain. So one of the nice descriptions they put in, um, in this article about what the acceptance and commitment therapy does is it tries to help change the patient's perception of suffering and just allow them to understand that they are having pain, but they do not have to suffer. So to help sort of eliminate the experience of suffering when pain absence is not feasible. I think that having an integrated approach to manage complex HS patients is very reasonable. And I personally have HS patients who have benefited from going to therapy, both physical therapy as well as um, behavioral therapy. And so I think that these are all good ideas. Um, Getting back into the realm of things we're a little bit more familiar with as dermatologists, we can talk about the pharmacologic agents. They talk about topical therapies. Some patients can be... can have improvement with topical therapies such as topical NSAIDs. We do have to be careful about injection or topical application site reactions with topical products. So topical NSAIDs, topical lidocaine, um, menthol was also proposed because of the cooling sensation. So it may be beneficial for that neuropathic pain if it has that burning characteristic. Of course, the next thing you would think about would be NSAIDs. Um, These can help reduce pain and disability in a lot of conditions, musculoskeletal disease, other inflammatory disorders. Um, You do have to be cognizant of the risk for GI bleeding. And you also have to think with some of them, such as the COX-2 selective NSAIDs, about cardiovascular risk. So they advocate for patients who have a low cardiovascular risk, but who may be at risk for GI bleeding to consider the COX-2 selective NSAIDs, um, along with potentially a a proton pump inhibitor. If you have a patient who has cardiovascular risk factor, naproxen was a preferred NSAID of choice. And of course, if you have a patient who's at risk for both GI bleeds and cardiovascular risk, you may want to avoid NSAIDs altogether. Acetaminophen may or may not have benefit. Um, It is a common first-line option because it has a relatively low side effect profile. However, in reviewing this, one of the pieces of data they have in one of the tables emphasizes the fact that it is still the leading cause of liver failure in the United States. And I looked into this personally, um, a couple of different articles that I read, greater than 50% of overdose-related acute liver failure is caused by acetaminophen, and about 20% of liver transplant cases are because of acetaminophen. So we do have to consider that, especially in our patients who might have metabolic syndrome and be at risk for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. They then kind of talk about some of the other medicines we may be more familiar with as dermatologists. So our neuromodulatory medications, gabapentin or pregabalin, um, which can be helpful to improve specifically the neuropathic pain and which have demonstrated efficacy in post-herpetic neuralgia as well as diabetic neuropathy. Medicines we're probably a little less familiar with, SNRIs, so serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors such as duloxetine. These can be first-line treatment for neuropathic pains in adults. Um, They have both a antidepressant and anxiolytic effect, as well as the ability to decrease neuropathic pain. So they can be nice options for HS pain. They can have the adverse effects of headache, nausea, fatigue, or sexual dysfunction, and serotonin syndrome is a possibility. Those are medicines like duloxetine, right? Yeah, duloxetine and venlaxifene. Um, You ever prescribe those? Uh, You know, I haven't independently prescribed those, although I've co-managed patients who have derived benefit from them. Venlaxitine. I've had one patient with bad erythromyalgia who gets some benefit from those things. Yeah, I think that, you know, they're an adjuvant. I don't think that they stand alone in the management of the discomfort these patients experience, which is in some patients quite profound. 
The duloxetine is the one they recommended as first-line therapy. Venlaxifene, also beneficial potentially, but it can prolong the QT interval. And so you have to be aware of that, especially with other medications that can do the same thing. Most of us at, at some point have probably used a TCA, a tricyclic antidepressant. Um, these can be Yeah, helpful. I remember using those back in college. <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke. I guess I shouldn't joke about my. I thought health. that was a joke. I was, I was like, I think he's joking. Um, so these can be helpful for peripheral neuropathy, post-hepatic neuralgia, mixed neuropathy. Um, they can also potentially help improve mood. They can have antiandrenergic, antihistaminic, and also antimuscarinic activity, which can cause xerostomia, blurry vision, and constipation. And they can also potentially induce arrhythmias, dizziness, or orthostatic hypotension. So you want to be cautious about their use in patients who have problems along those axes. They go over the major international HS pain management guidelines, and many of them still indicate the consideration of the WHO pain ladder for chronic pain. Um, as a person who is not a pain management specialist, I was not 100% familiar with that. So the WHO pain ladder is codeine, hydrocodone, and then morphine, which I did not know was a thing that existed. And then anticonvulsants such as pregabalin and gabapentin can also potentially feature on that axis. Um, the Canadian consensus guidelines I think give the greatest humanistic characters characterization to pain in HS and you know put forward that pain is one of the most debilitating features of HS and needs to be managed. And I do think it's something that we potentially don't manage as well as we probably should think about it. Um, when they talked about naproxen being a good choice for patients who you know don't have uh, GI bleeding risk, we do have to also bear in mind if you have those complex patients that are HS plus some lupus-ish thing or HS plus connective tissue disease, which sometimes occurs, that NSAIDs can cause aseptic meningitis with connective tissue disease. So I think that's something that we tend to also under-recognize as um, skincare specialists, but that is a potential adverse effect of those medications. Opioids, of course, are controversial and complex in the use of pain management for these patients with a condition that is unlikely to remit in any short-term period of time, and the risk for abuse is relatively high. So it can be a potential useful adjuvant for control of severe short-term pain, but I think in a very rational way, they advocate for consideration of incorporating a pain care specialist if you're having to resort to these medications. They also point out that even though they um, can give some better pain relief than placebo, opioids don't outperform other opioids bring analgesics, especially for pain lasting longer than three months. So they cite a meta-analysis of 96 random control, randomized controlled trials where opioids perform similarly to NSAIDs. Um, tricyclic antidepressants and anticonvulsants in improving pain and physical function scores in both neuropathic, nociceptive, central sensitization, and mixed pain. Uh, because there is an increased risk of chronic opioid use, and it is significant, these factors also can um, be considered when you're choosing pain management techniques for your patients. Increasing risk for opioid abuse is seen with patients who have concomitant depression who already also smoke or have increasing age. And opioids can have risks, including sedation, constipation, and cognitive impairment, urinary retention, and respiratory suppression, as well as serotonin syndrome if they're receiving synthetic opioids with SNRIs. I feel like the pimping bell should be ringing. I know. I was just thinking I should be ringing the pimping bell a lot. Also, this is an important one that I think we underemphasize um, as well, is that subsets of opiates are immunosuppressive and may increase infection risk in patients with con concomitant immunomodulatory medications. So those immunosuppressive uh, opiates are morphine, fentanyl, methadone. So those three 
morphine, fentanyl, and methadone are immunosuppressive and could potentially increase the risk for infection. Non-immunosuppressive opioids include oxycodone, oxymorphone, and tramadol. Speaking of tramadol, um, it has about 10% of morphine's analgesic potential and SNRI action. It has lower sedation, constipation, and respiratory depression risk. Um, and some patients have less risk of abuse with it. However, it still can be abused. One of my favorite therapies for inflammatory conditions, as well as dysesthesias, is low-dose naltrexone. So it is a mu-opioid antagonist. It's used off-label at low doses to treat pain and inflammation in a lot of different conditions, including multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, and fibromyalgia. Chronic low-dose naltrexone can increase opioid receptor density, which can sensitize the body to endogenous opioids and help improve auto-pain regulation. It also can decrease pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-6, TNF-alpha, and potentially other things that can cause pain in the setting of HS. Now, side effects can include vivid or disturbing, disturbing dreams. And of course, opioid withdrawal symptoms, if it's used concomitantly with opioids. I got we excited just, when... Go ahead. We just, you may have just been about to say this. We discussed low-dose naltrexone use in dermatology in demo episode number one, the very Woo. first episode we ever recorded. You can get that as a bonus episode. I was in my closet. I remember we were having a hard time finding a place to make it work. I was in the car. <laughs> but we figured it out. Um, so I got kind of intrigued when they brought up the cannabinoids. Um, sadly, the data for their improved benefit in um, HS is a little bit lacking. So there are some... Um, there is some evidence for use of the cannabinoids in cancer, mixed pain conditions, um, such as fibromyalgia, RA, but a lot of the studies on that have actually failed to show statistically significant benefit. It is possible that cannabinoids can downregulate inflammatory mediators in pruritic conditions like allergic contact dermatitis, and a topical endocannabinoid cream was beneficial for uremic pruritus in a study. Um, but cannabis use, they point out, is common in patients with HS, and that is Consistent with my experience with HS patients, um, there tends to be a greater propensity of patients who smoke anything, including um, sometimes cannabinoids. And it's unclear whether pain is the primary reason for cannabis use because most of the patients reporting cannabis report use before the development of HS symptoms. So it's also difficult to use and the regulations vary by state. And it is possible that cannabinoids can promote weight gain, which could worsen the disease. They talked about the possibility for acupuncture being helpful, which I thought was very cool. Um, it is kind of of questionable benefit with neuropathic pain, but has been shown to improve nociceptive pain from osteoarthritis and chronic headaches. The is risks it worth of it are, discussing the differences between nociceptive and neuropathic pain? I think so. And they do that later in the article, but we can talk about it now. Um, so nociceptive pain is, you know, you put your hand on a burner, you feel that burning pain, you move your hand, right? So nociceptive is basically the perception of something dangerous to you in the immediacy. So nociceptive destruction. Yes. Nociceptive pain from HS tends to come from direct tissue inflammation or infection and the reaction to that infection. Neuropathic pain can come from a, a variety of mechanisms in HS that can include problems with nerve damage. It can potentially also include problems with central sensitization. And patients who have chronic pain can be at a increased risk for sort of a miscalibration of the pain sensing symptoms of the skin and the rest of the body. So I think that those are all important things to consider. Something um, they emphasize in the article is that it can be helpful to determine which kind of pain your patient is experiencing because these different agents will work on nociceptive versus neuropathic pain differently. You're yes, probably going to talk about that. I am, but that's okay. Um, 
briefly, two more things they talked about in specific terms were alpha lipoic acid. Alpha lipoic acid has been used for diabetic neuropathy and can potentially improve the sensation of burning and stinging, may improve blood flow and decrease IL-6 levels. Nausea, when it's given orally, is the adverse effect that's most common. It can also interfere with thyroid hormone conversion. So if a patient is on thyroxine, you would use caution. And a phenomenon called autoimmune hypoglycemia has been reported with alpha lipoic acid, in which patients who have no prior insulin exposure develop autoantibodies to insulin and develop hypoglycemia as a result. Finally, they talk about curcumin. Can I mention something about alpha lipoic acid? First? You sure can. So I mostly think about it in the context of vitiligo. Apparently, it can be helpful for vitiligo. And you can buy a bottle of alpha lipoic acid tablets for about 30 bucks on the internet. Very cool. Not too expensive. Relatively safe. Curcumin, this is, of course, a spice. It's the dominant anti-inflammatory molecule of turmeric. It can inhibit inflammatory mediators, including TNF-alpha, IL-1, IL-6, and COX-2, and also may reduce cardiovascular events, which patients with HS may be at an increased risk for. So they have a very nice algorithm on page 194, which talks about managing either acute pain or chronic pain. Acute yeah, pain, this is where the money is. Yeah. This nice algorithm they lie out. Acute pain tends to be the dominant form of nociceptive pain. So they start with acetaminophen and topical NSAIDs, progressing through systemic NSAIDs, interlesional triamcinolone and IND of abscesses, and then progressing to tramadol or other short-acting opioids, potentially at this point, including a pain management specialist. For chronic pain, they talk about HS-directed therapy. Of course, we want to get the HS to behave. And then you want to screen for pain severity and psychological comorbidities. So you might add at this point, non-pharmacologic pain management, such as physical therapy, wound care, or one of the behavioral health measures we spoke of earlier, and then pharmacologic analgesia. So for nociceptive pain, that pain that could be described as burning or gnawing resulting from direct tissue injury, you might use an NSAID and you may add acetaminophen to that mix. You might consider duloxetine or nortriptyline in that pathway as well. For neuropathic pain, which is often described more with electric sort of adjectives, so radiating, zinging, um, shooting, tingling, shooting, pricking, tingling. shock-like. Yeah, like something like somebody being electrocuted a little bit because we are basically a ball of wires. Uh, gabapentin and duloxetine as first-line therapies, pregabalin, venlaxetine, and nortriptyline as adjuvant therapies. In episode seven, we discussed an article that discussed different ways people describe pain and whether or not you they kind of qualify as nociceptive or neuropathic. And listening to your patients, I think, is always a good idea. You may add some adjuvant therapies or have pain specialist referral, especially if the patients have failed more than two pharmacologic agents, if they have medically refractory HS with debilitating pain or ongoing chronic opioid use. So I think they make some excellent points and are great advocates for this important unmet need in our patients who have HS. I thought it was very well done by the authors. I also liked the very specific reasons to refer people to pain specialists or not. Mm -hmm. Well, we talked about natural products a little bit there with alpha lipoic acid and stuff. So I'm going to push that train further down the track and talk about the use of natural products in atopic dermatitis. So this is a from a journal called Biomedicine and Pharmacotherapy. The title is A Comprehensive Review of Natural Products Against Atopic Dermatitis colon, flavonoids, alkaloids, terpenes, glycosides, and other compounds. The authors include Shi Wu and Jin Hao Zheng out of China. So this is a review of various alternative medicine or natural products that have at least some data to support their use in atopic dermatitis. The authors cover a lot of ground, so I'm going to not do it all today. 
I'm going to split it up like we've done before for some of these. So today I'm just going to talk about flavonoids. Oh, so we have a mini series. We have a mini series and uh, I hope Flava Flavonoid might make an appearance. What if we have a theme song for it? What if it's like Flavonoids? Da -da -da. <laughs> That's good. All right. We'll just have to alter it for the, the other things that are not flavonoids. <laughs> um, some caveats. None of these products have been tested in human trials, and especially not placebo-controlled trials. The stuff they talk about here is all like mouse models and ex vivo studies. So an ex vivo study is when you have like a bunch of cells in a Petri dish and you put something on them and then you see how their cytochemical profile changes. And then the mouse models... I guess they're accepted as the atopic dermatitis model, but they like have to rub something on their ears to make their ears all rough and itchy, like atopic dermatitis. And then like, seems so mean. Then they see if they can make their itchy little ears better. So it's something, but it's not human trials. The data is hardly robust, but if you have a patient's interested in this kind of thing, you can at least offer some options or with those caveats, endorse their current products. If they say, hey, I'm using this stuff, you can say, well, yeah, there's some data that says that. And if you are the sort of person who likes to perform studies and trials, it looks like there's a lot of preliminary work that's been done on some of these products. By the way, they point out that in terms of atopic dermatitis pathogenesis, this might be bellworthy. They say the acute phase of atopic dermatitis has recently been linked to TH2 slash TH22 slash TH17 cell activation, and the chronic phase is characterized by TH1 polarization. All right. Here's a big old list of flavonoids with, again, some data behind them. And I'm going to try to pronounce them all correctly. Liquoridogen. Hmm comes from licorice root. I also looked up how much all these things cost if you were to buy them online. So you can buy $22 for a 57 gram jar of cream of this licorice root product. Not too bad. There's one called naringenin, which is in the peels of citrus fruit and grapes. So in the mouse models, the mice were treated with PO naringenin, 100 milligrams per kilogram. You can buy this stuff online. You can buy 60 500 milligram capsules for 10 bucks. That's not too bad. But it's 100 milligrams per kilogram. So I would need to take about 7,000 milligrams to get the mouse dose, which is 14 capsules. It's a lot of capsules. Something called bicalayan, which is in some plant called Scutellariae radix, which is in the mint family and commonly referred to as skull caps. Oh, skull cap. I know what skull cap is. Yeah, well, consider rubbing it on your atopic dermatitis. It was applied topically in the mice models. You can buy 10 grams of the powder for 30 bucks. But I don't know what you do with the powder. Ask oh. some compounding pharmacy to mix it up for you in vanacream. I have some patients that actually have a capsule maker and make their own capsules at home. No. Yeah. That's extreme. This was applied topically in the study, though. Quercetin, the one that I've heard of before. So assuming it's, I think we've discussed before, we don't know how to pronounce this. No. It's yeah. <laughs> in a bunch of different fruits and vegetables. The mice took it PO of 50 milligrams per kilogram. You can buy 60 500 milligram capsules for about 20 bucks. And I would need to take seven capsules to get the mouse equivalent dose. I assume, by the way, that it's 50 milligrams per kilograms per day, though they didn't really specify that. There is a compound called puerarin, which is extracted from the East Asian arrowroot, which is also called the kudzu vine. Mm. 
And I think in our country, kudzu has kind of a negative connotation because it's the vine that ate the South, right? It was like this invasive species that just went everywhere and is a huge pain in the butt for those mm-hmm. who live in the South. Yet any yeah. kudzu down in Lubbock, Texas, Michelle? Lubbock is usually too dry for that, but in South Texas, probably uh, it tends to crawl over all the plants and it kind of chokes out the light supply and things like that. Well, squeeze them hard and you can get some puerarin dripping out. <laughs> a, a mouse model compared PO puerarin um, versus dexamethasone. So mm. 50 milligrams per kilogram of puerarin versus one mg per kg of dexamethasone, which is like a lot of dexamethasone, right? Because mm-hmm. I usually give people like four milligrams and they're a lot bigger than a mouse, more than four times bigger, I would say. And apparently puerarin was superior in terms of suppressing inflammatory cytokines, and you can buy 100 450 milligram capsules of puerarin for 30 bucks. I would need to take eight of them to get the mouse dose. Formononetine is a phytoestrogen extracted from red clover. In a mouse model, it was particularly good at preventing recurrence at 0.4 to 10 milligrams per kilogram PO. That's a pretty big range, 0.4 to 10. You can buy 60 500 milligram capsules for 20 bucks. So I would need to take just a single capsule to get something in the mouse dose range. So it might be the least expensive of these options, but do I want to be taking an estrogen? I don't know. Yeah, me neither. Um, but I'm, maybe if I were a female version of myself, it wouldn't be as big a deal. <laughs> Chrysin, C H R Y S I N, is in propolis. This might be bellworthy, which we know is like in beeswax and occasionally a sensitizer. Also in vegetables and fruits. Again, there's some efficacy in a mouse model, but we don't know if it was PO or topical. You can buy the capsules fairly cheaply, 20 bucks for 3,500 milligram capsules. And then there's also a flavonoid called Chimay Jasmine, which is the main active component of a plant called Stellora Chimay Jasmine, which is a flowering herb that grows in Asia. It looks like it helped PO in a mouse model, though oddly, over-the-counter, according to the internet, it's marketed topically as a wart and skin tag remover. Interesting. The authors mentioned a couple others that just don't seem to be available for purchase, even with the internet, including sulfuritin from the Chinese lacquer tree, which we know has some like cross-sensitization with poison ivy and things. It's even in the Roos family. And then there's something called diosmetin from lemon peel that I just couldn't find easily online. So there you go. If, again, if patients say, hey, I'm using this stuff, or do you have any recommendations? The flavonoids that have at least some data behind them include liquoridogen from licorice root, nerinogen from the peels of citrus fruit and grapes, baclain from the skullcap plants, quercetin, which is in a bunch of stuff, pararin from the kudzu vine, formononetin, phytoestrogen from red clover, Chrysin in beeswax, vegetables, and fruit, and Chimay jasmine from some herb. The red clover products are in a lot of over-the-counter sort of touchy-feely herbal hair loss remedies, as an estrogen agonist, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm conflicted as a Western medicine-trained physician. I think that there probably is some data behind all this stuff, but the odds of it, like being anywhere close to as effective as topical steroids and things seems pretty unlikely. And a lot of times people think that if it's natural, it's like a safer option, which I think is also questionable, but there's, there's things out there and I think it's worth studying them. I think so too. I, I like quercetin. The more I learn about these flavonoids and stuff, the more I realize how much food is medicine and how much 
you know, we get microdoses of these beneficial compounds in the foods we eat if we eat a broad and varied diet. So the whole eat the rainbow kind of advice, I think, is a good piece of advice. So my children's diet of frozen pizza and cupcakes probably does not have a lot of quercetin. Nope. Maybe some lycopene, though. All right. That's going to be my justification to my wife. No, it's okay. It's lycopene. Lycopene is good stuff. Um, speaking of advice your mama gave you, so she probably told you to eat your fruits and vegetables full and rich in flavonoids. She probably also told you to sit up straight. So let's talk here about a communication in dermatologic surgery discussing technology-based postural apparel as a sustainable and cost-effective solution to musculoskeletal pain and injury in the dermatologic surgeon. The authors are Elizabeth Lennart and Cameron Chestnut et al. out of the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, University of Washington School of Medicine, and Chestnut MD Cosmetic Surgery Fellowship. Kind of Dr. Chestnut. This I know. He should be on the natural product paper instead. And also potentially a candidate for most fun name on, a, yeah. on an author name. So this is a nice short communication discussing the fact that Specifically, dermatologic surgeons stand in a lot of awkward positions and are at great risk for musculoskeletal injury. And actually, a study of most surgeons in 2010 showed that 90% experienced musculoskeletal injury, including pain in the neck, lower and upper back, and shoulders, with 15% of neck and upper back pain described as intense. So they felt that this was probably due to static postural positions during surgery involving excessive neck and truncal flexion, or more commonly known as slouching. Michelle, do you think dermatologic surgeons is the only dermatologic subspecialty that can get muscle pain from postures? Oh, no, no. Dermatopathologists have a mighty hump, most of them, from the the hunching over the microscope. And they have started to make microscopes that have adjustable oculars so you can stand or sit and so that you're not forced into a forward posture to look into the oculars. But many of us are still using the more vintage ones that are not quite as ergonomic. Well, maybe you can just wear clothes instead. I know that's what they kind of are potentially offering. So they said that there have been some other focuses on trying to improve this through workplace customization, such as smaller operating tables or stools with sternal support. So like a stool that you could actually lean your sternum against whilst operating. Patient repositioning might help with ergonomic strain. However, the, the normal derm surgeon is going from room to room, taking care of multiple patients with dynamic movement. Um, they're also potentially sitting at a microscope and also discussing the patient's care. So changing longstanding workplace habits or hardware may be undesirable or impossible for experienced surgeons. So they wanted to look at postural apparel, which is clothing designed to improve posture. It is a financially reasonable alternative to posture and may have direct effect on surgeon posture, can be easy to incorporate, and it travels with the surgeon. So postural apparel uses fabric technology designed to impose consistent tensile force on specific muscle groups to promote an upright stance. There are also brace posture correctors that are like a shoulder harness to help keep the shoulders from rolling forward. And these have the advantage of repeated use without need for washing. So I'm trying to experience in my head what it would be like to wear one of these shirts. Maybe I should have got one. I have a lot of these, actually. You do? Uh So my impression is that it's kind of like wearing something with some like elasticity to it that sort of gently tugs you in the right direction. And if you move in the wrong direction, you feel that little bit of elastic kind of pulling you back. So you think to yourself, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be standing up straight. Does that sound like your experience? Yes. And really, the way that many of these um, garments are structured is that they have sort of bands of 
less flexible material that correspond to the support you should have from well-trained muscle groups. So they sort of are in the same distribution, but sort of pulling in an opposing direction to like your trapezius. I'm trying to show Luke a picture. We might put some pictures on the website, not promoting any of these, just demonstrating what they are. Um, but they, they tend to- They do point to, out some specific brands in here. They do. They actually- not sponsored. They point out um, Intelliskin, AlignMed, and Evidence-Based Apparel, IG- Sorry, IFG Fit. By um, the way, up, that right. brand is now called Form, F-O-R-M-E. They changed it. That's fun. And then Back Brace Posture Correctors, which they have many of these. So as a dermatopathologist who is trying to avoid developing a mighty hump, I do actually have some of these garments. And I do find that they remind you to sit properly during the day. There are also some devices which they um, emphasize here, these little compact vibrational training devices. Um, one from a company called Upright Technologies Israel that can be worn with an adhesive on the upper back or as a necklace. The one concern I had with the vibrating device is that if you're doing surgery and it's like a very delicate surgery, like an eyelid or something, and this thing vibrates, like what if it startled you? Like I wondered if, if that might be something to consider. The, the tensile fabric and the clothing is a little bit more of a subtle correction. Um, but I do think that these can have consistent um, po postural correction. And some of the, the wearable tech devices actually even give you significant feedback. They tell you about your posture throughout the day. They can tell you about how many times you had to adjust. You can set postural goals. So it's like any other piece of wearable technology. It can sort of help us to improve our day-to-day -day practice. Uh, yeah, there's but, like an app associated with it. So you can mm -hmm. like look at the app and presumably like look at a graph of how your posture was over the course of the day. I mean, if my grandma was still alive, she'd probably get all of this, all of us this thing for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And so postural correction can help to reduce the incidence of work-related musculoskeletal symptomatology. It hasn't been studied specifically in dermatologists, but it has been have, there have been some studies done in dentists. And so I think that this can help improve pain. It doesn't cost a whole lot of money. It doesn't place a lot of demand on the physician, and it can help improve um, our musculoskeletal health. So I think it's a reasonable consideration. Do you think your wearable postural corrective garments are helpful for you? I do. I think one of the challenges with some of them is putting them on. They take a little while to put on. So if you're in a hurry in the morning, it can be a little bit of a challenge. Um, huh. Some of the newer ones actually have a little bit of an easier uh, kind of slip in mode where some of them have zippers and things like that, which would make it easier. Some of them, because the fabric doesn't stretch very much, it can be a little bit of a workout to get them on over your head and over your shoulders. Uh, but I think that this is a, a very useful thing to think about. So. Yeah. Seems like they should have zippered ones like some compression stockings do. They do. They do have some zippered ones. The the ones that specifically did in this group that Intelliskin had a nice like up the front zipper that I actually ordered while we were like reviewing the article. So yeah. Yeah. I will give you feedback as to whether or not I find it helpful. Uh, feedback. So the <laughs> authors, by the way, do not have any financial conflicts with these companies either. I don't do a lot of procedures. I have like two excisions a week sometimes. and But I do find that my neck gets sore, my shoulders get sore. Sometimes I think I should spring for a pair of loops because sometimes it's just like me hunching over the site to try to get a better look at it. But I think that uh, you know ergonomics is somewhat ignored and probably shouldn't be. Most of the dermatologic surgeons I've talked to who've talked about this at all are emphasize fairly strongly that you need to be comfortable while you're doing surgery because uh, Dr. Duffy, one of our main surgeons here, is, you only have one back, you only have one neck, and it's got to last you 30 years. Yep. 
All right, I want to talk about a little therapeutic pearl from the JAD by a group of authors from Kansas City, including D.D. Liu and Daniel Aris, entitled Significant Cost Savings from Home Compounded Greer's Goo. Mm. So... In 1971, think back to what you were doing in 1971. Probably not existing. Not existing. But <laughs> Kenneth Greer existed, and he was a dermatologist. And he found a recipe for a compounded diaper paste in an old textbook. <laughs> so we don't know, actually, apparently, where this originated. This but, is like uh, a story out of Harry Potter. <laughs> this old textbook, old and dusty, found in the basement somewhere, crinkling pages, Imagine him turning it open and the crackling pages and the creaking and there's like a wooden ladder in the background and a bare light bulb smell, you know. Right. And then it's like sketched out, you know, around a bunch of strange dwarven runes is this like old mason jar of diaper paste with the recipe in some other language. And apparently it's sometimes known as Greer's goo. Um, and it's pretty straightforward. So it's nice statin powder, hydrocortisone powder, <clears throat> and zinc oxide paste all mixed together. So if you wanted to have a compounding pharmacy make this up for you, <coughs> excuse me, it's specifically 4 million units of nystatin powder, 1.2 grams of hydrocortisone powder, which is going to equal light, slightly less than 1%, and then 4 ounces of zinc oxide paste. But they say that even though the ingredients are pretty simple, it can cost 100 bucks or so to compound it. Yeah. And so the purpose of this article is to sort of explain how patients can just make it themselves, in which case it costs about 35 or 30 bucks. So you get 45 grams of Nystatin cream, you get hydrocortisone 2.5% ointment, and you get four ounces of zinc oxide paste, which you can then, you know, you just buy that online or over the counter. It's things like um, Desitin Max Strength and Boudreaux's Butt Paste Maximum Strength. Those have 40% zinc oxide in them. You mix it all together and you decant as needed. So <laughs> you got a big jar of it and then you just take out what you need so that you avoid recontaminating by sticking your dirty fingers back in there. They say that the vast majority of university clinic patients using homemade goo improved clinically within weeks. Like now, that's it. just a statement. It's presumably an anecdote. It's presumably not placebo controlled. So perhaps if they weren't using anything, they also would have improved clinically within weeks. Uh, they say it might also work for intertrigo and inverse psoriasis. One reason I wanted to discuss this is because our senior pediatric dermatologist here at the University of Utah is Dr. Cheryl Vanderhoeft. And she has what she refers to as her triple threat, which is basically this, except mm -hmm. it's layered rather than all mixed together. So the way we often do it here is use econazole cream first, okay. and hydrocortisone 2.5% ointment over the top of that, and then thick diaper pastes, something like, again like Desitin Max Strength or Boudreaux's Butt Paste Maximum Strength over the top of that. And I asked her like once upon a time, what's the point of the antifungal thing? You don't really think there's candidate in there. And she says, well, no, but I find that it just discourages yeast from taking up residence in there. And it just seems to work better when you add the econazole. And I wasn't a believer at first. And then I had a patient who wasn't getting better without it. So I added econazole and then they got better. So it was just one patient, of course, but I'm kind of a believer. And I would prefer to call this Dr. Vanderhoof's triple threat rather than Greer's goo. No offense to <laughs> Dr. Greer. Um, and one of our other pediatric dermatologists also recommends that you, instead of putting the diaper paste on the butt, you put it on the diaper itself just for mm. easy application because you've already put a bunch of stuff on the baby's butt. So then you can put the diaper paste on the diaper itself to make it a little bit easier to apply. That's interesting. 
By the way, you can also get um, just zinc oxide compounded. So the products that I mentioned, I think are pretty good, but if you're really worried about sensitization or sensitive skin in a baby, you can have a compounding pharmacy mix up 40% zinc oxide paste and petrolatum and then just cornstarch to hold it together. So that's about the simplest possible way you can get diaper paste. And then the compounding pharmacy can mix that up. It's a bit of expensive. It's like $22 for a jar, as opposed to the stuff you can buy over the counter, which is more like eight bucks probably. But I've had a few patients or parents who want to do that. So there you go. Dr. Vanderhoof's triple threat can mix it up, can compound it, and then a few other diaper paste tidbits. I've definitely used that in patients that had recalcitrant dinder trigo, um, especially patients in West Texas who are what we call Texas-sized, um, do not infrequently suffer from relatively severe intertrigo. And the combination of the mild anti-inflammatory benefit from the hydrocortisone, the barrier protection from the zinc oxide, and the anti-yeast benefit from the nystatin really does seem to, to be a great way to take care of it. So I, I can, I think, start calling it Dr. Vandergrip. Vanderhoofed. Vanderhoofed. I don't think she'd be offended if you just called her Cheryl. Cheryl's triple threat. Cheryl's triple threat. Yeah, I love that idea. And, you know, people do a lot of performing here in Texas. So triple threat is something that is familiar. In the performing world, of course, a triple threat is somebody who can act, sing, and dance. I am a not a threat at all. <laughs> okay. I think that's all the time we've got today, guys. So today we learned about how behavioral economics can help influence our patients decisions and it's probably ethical we learned some pain management algorithms for hydradenitis separativa we learned about some flavonoids flavor flavonoids perhaps potentially work in atopic dermatitis we learned some fun ways that you can correct your posture especially when you're doing procedures and we learned about cheryl's triple threat Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, guys. If you would like to hang out with us some more in some of our previous episodes, you can find our entire archive on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And my wife tells me I should uh, suggest that you leave us a nice review. So if you like us, then give us a nice review. If you don't like us, just uh, keep that to yourself and you're probably not still listening anyway. You can also find our entire archive and some other goodies on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which is also a good way to get in touch with us. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And thanks to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who keeps our social media accounts trucking right along. Thanks again for hanging out with us, and we will see you guys in two weeks. Bye.